Father, we thank you so much. We thank you so much for this wonderful morning and the opportunity to share your word. And I just pray, Lord, that uh, you would bless your word as it goes out, that uh, we would have ears to hear and hearts to respond so that uh, when all is said and done, you would be glorified and we would be changed. Lord, I thank you for this morning. We commit it to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. What a blessing it has been to be able to celebrate Christmas. Uh, kind of uh, in a some sense, you know, as we start to focus on Christ, which we should every day, a reprieve from all the horrible things that are going on these days in the world. Uh, whether it's coronavirus, whether it's uh, uh, all the fraud and whatever it might be. You look at all the stuff going on, you wonder what's going to happen well, the reality is that if you're looking for hope uh, or you're hoping in this government or you're hoping in this world or whatever it might be, you're going to be sorely disappointed because the only true hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, uh, the Lord is gracious and uh, we pray that we might be able to live a quiet life. Uh, we pray for our leaders that they might come to faith so we might be able to do so. But that may not happen. We see throughout Scripture there are times where difficulty comes, great difficulty comes upon the people of God, and how we respond when that difficulty comes. Well, today we're going to see that uh, prophecy was fulfilled um, in King Jesus, Jesus Christ, um, the despised deliverer who is our only hope. Would you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 to 23, and uh, we'll have another message next week, and then we'll get back to our series in 2 Thessalonians, and so be reading ahead in that. But uh, we've looked already at two passages in Matthew uh, this Christmas season. We saw in chapter 1 um, the tremendous reality of of uh, the Christ, uh, that Jesus would be born. You'll show, a child shall be born. You shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And Matthew made it clear that he is uh, of the descendant of David and also of Abraham. He is the rightful king, but he's also the seed of Abraham, the one in which all the nations would be blessed. We saw that Matthew, uh, in the beginning in that chapter, reveals the tremendous, wonderful reality that Christ ultimately would fulfill the reality of God with us. You see, sin has separated mankind from God, and it is through Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that he brings in his blood that we are reunited in a relationship with the living God, where we are reconciled to him and God is with us. And then we came uh, to chapter 2. Uh, we saw this uh, two weeks ago, the responses to the birth of King Jesus. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2 and let's just briefly review what we saw uh, two weeks ago in terms of this, uh, the responses that came at that time. Matthew chapter 2 verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, I'm not going to get into all the details like we did two weeks ago. You can grab a CD on the way out. But we have these events taking place after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. 
and he was born, and we saw the timing, in the days of Herod the king. And that's important because we'll see Herod later on as we look at our passage today. And it's important to remember who he was, so let's review who this Herod character was um, because we're going to see him later on in our passage today. Well, Herod, we see, is called the king here, but also in Luke chapter 1, verse 5, he is called the king of Judea. You see, Herod was uh, not a Jew. He was an Idumean. He was of Edomite origin. And in 40 B.C., the Roman Senate uh, named him the king of the Jews. Uh, and the title that he received, certainly the Jews despised. Uh, he was a powerful man. Uh, when, the trip, when the temple was refurbished, it was called Herod's Temple, the same temple that Christ would go into and, and overturn the, the tables. Herod was a brutal killer. He murdered many people to stay in power, including his brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, his wife, also uh, uh, sons by one wife put to death. He was a murderer. He was a brutal man who would do anything to stay in power. And I mentioned this last time, even Caesar would say of Herod, it is safer to be Herod's sow than his son. Safer to be his, an animal than, than, his, than his relative. Now certainly we're going to see in chapter 2 verse 16 that Herod was a murderous maniac of a dictator. Now Herod, the king of the Jews, by virtue of Rome, is who is being spoken of here. So back in verse 1 now, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, obviously, there was more than three of them because it caused quite a stir, as we'll say, in Jerusalem. There was quite an uproar based on probably how many of them came. And most likely these magi were the wise men of the day from Persian or Babylonian descent. They were most likely the highly educated like those in the book of Daniel, we see. Now, what we do know is whether they were pagan or not is that they were given revelation from God and they responded to it. And so this group of foreign dignitaries has arrived in Jerusalem and they're asking questions in Jerusalem, obviously. Verse 2, where is he who has been born... King of the Jews, for we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, we don't worship uh, uh, anything other than deity, right? We worship God. They understood that they've seen his star in the east and they have come. So they've come to worship him. But wait a second, there's a problem. We have King Herod, the king of the Jews, and now these dignitaries are coming saying, we've come to worship the king of the Jews. Well, there's a conflict here. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Before we saw his star and have come to worship him. Now you might remember we saw the responses. We saw the responses to the birth of Jesus Christ. First of all, we saw the response of Herod and the Jews. And we'll look at the Jews first, but then we'll review that and then look at Herod. Notice what happens here. Verse 4, And gathering together all the chief priests... Excuse me, verse 3, and this is important. And when Herod the king heard it, when he heard about the dignitaries looking for the king of the Jews who had been born, he was troubled. That word means shaken up. He was shook up. And all Jerusalem with him. 
Very interesting. Herod's shaken up because he's a selfish murderer of a dictator and there's competition to his throne, so he's shaken up. But we saw the Jews who were shaken up also. They were shaken up also. The tremendous event has happened. The king of the Jews has been born, but yet they're agitated. They're upset. You see, they were agitated. They were apathetic. And as I shared two weeks ago, they were unbelieving. That's why. You see, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ and you're confronted with the reality of Christ, it's going to agitate you because he gets in the way of your life. And so we see that these Jews are agitated, but Herod... Uh, we see, had the heart of unrestrained unbelief. Notice verse 4. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them to where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, so for it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judea, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people, Israel." Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. Oh, Herod wants to worship the Lord, right? He's got a, he's a brother, right? Well, not really. You see, Herod is an evil man. He is a a wicked man who is not coming to worship. He wants to destroy Christ. And we'll see later on Herod's desire to slay him and what he does to try to get to him. We'll see that today. So we have here the Jews who are apathetic and unbelieving. We have Herod who is unrestrained, desiring to kill off his competition to the throne. Um, And then we have the third response we saw look at verse 9 and having heard the king they went their they went their own way and lo the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it stood over where the child was and when they saw the star they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and they came into the house and saw the child with mary his mother and they fell down and worshiped him And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And so there were three responses. And the the Magi, little revelation, not much. The Jews had all the Old Testament, and yet they could care less about the Christ being born. Herod saw him as as a threat to his throne But yet the Magi, with very little revelation from God, came to worship him. When they found him, they worshipped him and they presented their gifts to him. And instead of going back to share with Herod where the child was, God warned them and a dream and not to return to him, and they departed to their country by another way. Let me ask you this. Who are you like when it comes to Jesus? Are you like the Jews, just kind of pushing him aside? Are you like Herod, where he is a threat to your life? Or are you like the Magi, when you recognize who Christ really is and you desire to worship him, to worship Christ? And that's why we come to church. We don't come to church for songs and sermons. We come to church to worship the living God. You see, before I was saved, I thought I was saved, and church was just something I endured every Sunday. It was something I endured 
But when God changed my heart, when he exposed my sin and revealed to me what I had known, but it applied to me directly, that I needed a Savior, when I repented and trusted in him, he changed everything in my life. And now I'm desired to be in the body of Christ, to worship him, to sing his praises, to hear his word. What do you like? If Christ hasn't changed you yet, then you're either like uh, the Jews or like Herod. Christ is just in the way. Something or something I got to do to get it out of the way, whatever it might be. But we're going to see here in today's passage that Jesus Christ fulfills the prophecies of a Redeemer who would come, the only one who brings hope to this world. Let's take a look at our passage here. Look at verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Arise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So in context, when they had departed, that's speaking to the Magi who had left by another direction so they would not go back to Herod. When they had departed, we have here now, Behold, or look, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Now, you might remember uh, Joseph from chapter 1. He's now back in the picture. He is a righteous man. He is Mary's husband, but he is not Jesus' biological father. Indeed, we saw in chapter 1, Mary's Jesus' human mother, but yet that which was conceived in her was of the Holy Spirit, not of Joseph. And now the child has been born, and now Joseph is being addressed again by an angel of the Lord. The term angel means messenger, messenger. We see in Hebrews chapter 2 that they are just ministering spirits to render service to those who would inherit salvation. And so we have an angel of the Lord. So here we have an angel of the Lord appear to Joseph in a dream. And what does the angel say to Joseph in this dream? Now, he's, it's not that it's not real. We know that before the word was completed, that God spoke in many ways, in many portions, but now has spoken through his son. We see his revelation in all kinds of different ways throughout the Old Testament, including dreams, but now he has spoken through his son. We have the completed revelation in Jesus Christ. But here, in this dream, the angel of the Lord speaks to Joseph, and he speaks the Lord's word for the Lord. He's for the Lord, speaking for the Lord. Arise and take, this is middle of verse 13, arise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Very, very simple. I don't need to explain this. It's pretty straightforward. Rise up, take the child and his mother. Speaking of Mary, flee, literally take flight to Egypt. Get out of there and get, get out of here and get, go there. And he's commanded to remain there until I tell you. Pretty clear, straightforward command. So Joseph is uh, commanded to do this, but why? He's given an explanation for Herod. Little end of verse 13 is going to search for the child to destroy him. And if you wonder what destroy means, If you look down in uh, verse 20, it talks about to take his life, to take his life. wants to kill baby Jesus, kill God the Son who took on human flesh. Herod seeks to ruin, to destroy, to take the life of the Christ child. 
And that's the mindset of the unbeliever when confronted with Christ. Get him out of the way. Get him out of the way. I don't want anything to do with Christ. Get him out of the way. And in Herod's case, in the context of his insanity, he believes he can get away with it. But folks, nothing passes by the Lord. He is sovereign over all. The evil plans of unbelieving kings are futile, and so are those of you who do not know Christ yet. We know from Psalm 2, the psalmist writes, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of earth take their stand and rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. That's what Herod's doing. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. This is Psalm 2. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon my holy mountain. So Joseph, a righteous man, notice he obeys immediately. You know, righteous, those who are righteous, not because of their own actions, but because of faith in Jesus Christ, those who receive the righteousness of Christ have a changed demeanor. You see them as obedient. We see Joseph here. Look at verse 14. And he arose and took his mother, took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. He just did it. He took flight right away. Now, obviously, if he was dreaming, he probably wasn't taking a nap. It probably was night. And so he arose right away, and he took the mother and and the child by night and departed for Egypt. This is something for us to think about. He obeyed right away. Now, some say, oh, he went at night because it's more safe to travel at night. Well, of course, if you're running away from something, it's safer at night. But the point is, he did it right away. He did it right away. Now, Egypt was a safe haven for Jews at this time. 300 years earlier, Alexander the Great had established a sanctuary for Jews in Alexandria. And during Roman rule, the city was considered a safe haven for Jews. And I marvel again at the, the, the obedience of Joseph. No discussion, no contemplation, just obedience to the clear commands of God which we have here in Scripture, to take his family to Egypt immediately. Oh, that you and I would be like Joseph, that we would obey. But you say, well, no angel has come to me and said, do this or that. Well, God has revealed his word, and there are many more clear commands in his word for us that we ignore at times. Very clear commands. Very clear commands. Sadly, often we contemplate what our desires and God's desires, we mix them together rather than obeying him. Rather than just obeying. I'll give you some examples. The scripture says the companion of fools will suffer harm, but we contemplate our own reasoning why we hang out with them. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. But we have our own understanding rather than just doing the right thing. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. We're told in Ephesians 4 not to let the sun go down, even on our irritation. We're not to be irritated at anybody by the time we go to bed, lest, he says, and do not give the devil an opportunity, a place. But yet we ignore those commands and we eventually reap. 
Joseph didn't lean on his own understanding or trust his feelings. He just obeyed the clear commands of God. And we as believers have clear commands. If you're not a believer, you're not going to be able to do it. It's just going to be external. But if you're a believer, I just gave it some examples. There's so many other examples of clear commands for us. So Joseph here didn't obey. He didn't trust his feelings. He didn't lean on his own understanding. He didn't go get counsel. He just obeyed God. And folks, don't forget, there is no other spiritually safe place to be apart from resting in the Lord in the context of obedience. You see, we lean on our understanding. We think, well, if this is this and then this and this. No, 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 no. We need to trust the Lord and obey him. We need to trust him. And Joseph was an example of that. So notice, uh, now it's also important to realize that the, the plans of unbelieving kings and unbelievers are futile. Yes, we have all kinds of stuff going on these days that we can be fearful of what might happen, how it might happen, what it might be. But see, God even uses the wicked plans of unbelievers to accomplish his will, and we need to see it. It doesn't justify their evil. We're never going to see that. But he uses their plans. Notice what happens here. Verse 14. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod. And that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt I did call my son. This was in fulfillment to prophecy in the Old Testament. Joseph was obedient until the death of Herod, that this prophecy might be fulfilled. He says, that which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets. You see, prophets didn't just make up their own stuff. The false ones did. But true prophets of the Lord just didn't go out and share things. They spoke the Lord's words. Otherwise, they were false prophets. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, uh, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God would be adequate for every good work. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah 23, and we'll later on go to 31, so you'll be nearby there. Jeremiah 23. You see, the scriptures aren't just some bunch of dudes that wrote stuff down and and, uh, decided what to write. No, these are men inspired by the Spirit of God. They spoke for God. Jeremiah 23, 21. Now, this is the Lord reproving the false prophets of Israel in the time before they were taken into exile. Jeremiah 23, 21. And in this reproof, we see what true prophets should be doing. Jeremiah 23, 21. I did not send those prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. Sounds like some churches these days, right? But if they had stood in my counsel, they would have announced my words to my people and would have turned them back from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. That's what prophets did. They spoke God's word to turn them from their sin unto the Lord. And that's what the scripture does, by the way, throughout. And most of these false prophet stuff, it's all about stuff that it tickles your soul or whatever, your, your flesh, rather than confronts you with your sinfulness that you might become more like Jesus Christ. And so in these days, when there were prophets, we see they spoke for God. They spoke his words. 
Indeed, that's what Peter says in 2 Peter 1.21. He says, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, Scripture means written word, graphe, is of one's own interpretation. First, 2 Peter 1.21. It says, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Spirit spoke from God. So back in our passage, back in Matthew chapter 2, he says here that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, might be fulfilled. Now, it's important to note that we're going to see three different prophecies here fulfilled in Christ, and they are in different tenses, and that helps us understand kind of what's going on. So, for instance, here in verse 15, we have a tense that what was spoken might be fulfilled, speaking of the future. Then in verse 17, we have something that was already fulfilled. Then that which was spoken through the prophet was fulfilled, it was already done. Then in verse 23, we have again the end, that might be fulfilled. Okay, so the first two, the first and the end, last prophecy are going to be fulfilled. The one in the middle was fulfilled, and we'll talk about that. So then, what was this prophecy that would be fulfilled? Back in our passage, he says that, uh, verse 15, the middle of it, that that which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, out of Egypt did I call my son. That's the prophecy that would be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus going to Egypt, but then coming back from Egypt. He would have to come back from Egypt. If he went there, if he didn't go there, this wouldn't be fulfilled. But what is this? You're wondering, what is this, what is this prophecy? Well, this prophecy was taken from the book of Hosea, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. And let me remind you, if you're familiar with the book of Hosea, Hosea is about God's faithfulness in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness. That's what it's about. You might remember that in the book of Hosea, God calls upon Hosea to take a wife of harlotry, harlotry named Gomer. And she is a picture of Israel, blatantly and unabashedly going after other gods, just like a harlot with other men. And although Hosea is heartbroken and grieved over her actions, he is faithful to her, redeeming her and loving her and keeping his covenant. And this is a picture of a loving God, a faithful God, who is faithful to Israel in spite of her wickedness. Let's take a look at Hosea chapter 11. Hosea, Joel, Amos is just after the Psalms and Proverbs, after Jeremiah. Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, then he come to Hosea. Hosea chapter 11. And this is the prophecy that is here. And so we want to look at how it was originally shared, and then the, the author by the Spirit, Matthew, brings it forth in a way that we can understand it and how it's applied to, to the Lord. Hosea 11.1. 1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now that's speaking of Israel, the nation, right? And it's coming out of Egypt in the redemption from Pharaoh. That's the context in Hosea, okay? Okay, and he says here, 
the more that the more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the balls and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took him in my arms, but they did not know that I had healed them. I led them with the cords of men, the bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws. And I bent down and fed them. They would not return. To, they they would not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria. He will be their king because they refused to return to me. So the context is, hey, I brought you out of Egypt to be mine, and now you're going to be disciplined and go to Assyria. That's really the context here, speaking of Israel. But how does this apply to um, the Lord Jesus in ours? How does going to Egypt and then coming back fulfill this? Well, that's a good question. Now, obviously, the New Testament completed reveals truth throughout concerning Christ. The Lord Jesus, when he rose from the dead in, uh, in uh, Luke chapter 24, explained this reality. He explained uh, that how the word of God pointed to him. Let me share this, Luke 24, verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and all the prophets, he explained to him, to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He explained about how the scriptures pointed to him. You see, they all point to him in some manner in the right context and understood rightly. Okay, with this in mind, how is this prophecy back in Matthew concerning God's son Israel being called out of Egypt, fulfilled in Christ being called out of Egypt? How is this? Well, first of all, we need to remember that in the Old Testament, there are times in which God would reveal things in type. He would do something through a situation or a person, and that would be a type, or it would typify what God would be doing later on through his son. It would be a picture of what God would be doing. We see that often in Scripture. And I want to give you one caveat. It's not we who determine what those types are. God does. Like, for instance, Colossians chapter 2 points to certain elements of the Old Testament which were types and shadows fulfilled in Christ, such as the Sabbath fulfilled in Christ. We also see the book of Hebrews shows the Old Covenant would be fulfilled uh, in the New Covenant. The New Covenant. And remember, we don't have the liberty to choose what events in the Old Testament relate to Christ and what don't. It's God's Spirit and how he intended it originally that reveals that. And the New Testament will expand upon that. So then, back in our text, how does Christ being called out of Egypt as a son fulfill this prophecy? Well, I think we need to recognize, first of all, as Israel came out of Egypt... They had to come out for God to fulfill his redemptive promises. If they stayed in Egypt, they never would have been fulfilled. If Christ had been killed by Herod, never gone to Egypt, and thus never come out of Egypt, the redemptive prophecies concerning him would never have been fulfilled. Just as if Christ were killed by Herod, not going to Egypt, and then not coming out, there would be no redemptive promises accomplished. So I believe it points to the fact that God would bring out future deliverance from bondage like he pictured with the Israelites through Jesus Christ who would come out of Egypt. 
Now, this is totally contrary to the satanic view of those on the History Channel and whatever who say that Jesus went to Egypt to learn the magic arts during that time. Well, we're going to see in a little bit, he came back as a very young child, a babe, so he wasn't even cognizant at that time. But he went there to fulfill prophecy that he would not be killed by Herod and that he would come back and fulfill the promises that were brought in place for him to be the Redeemer. He fulfilled those promises. So with that in mind, we have the first prophecy fulfilled here in our passage. And then notice, we have another prophecy. Come look at our passage again in Matthew chapter uh, 2, verse 16. He says, Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged, and he sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its environs from two years old and under, according to the time in which he is ascertained from the Magi. So Herod had sent the uh, Magi to go find the child and report back. They had been warned by God to not report back, but to skedaddle and go back to their country. And Herod realizes he got burned. Okay, and he is enraged. The term had been tricked really is, is translated almost everywhere else mocked. It's actually used uh, intensively and, and, and specifically with the Lord Jesus Christ and the mocking of him. Herod realizes he's been mocked. That's how he feels. I've been mocked by these magi. And he became very enraged. He became exceedingly angry. You could translate it that way. He is hot because everything is about Herod. So what does he do? He sent and slew, middle of 16, all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its environs from two years old and under according to the time which he had ascertained from the magi. Based on the information he received when he first met the Magi, when the star had appeared, he figured out how old the Christ child would be, and he didn't want to come worship, by the way. And so he slew these children. And folks, this is quite disturbing when you think about it. If you have children, you can imagine the pain of having these children slaughtered. Now, all throughout history, we have the fact that Herod slew many people. But we don't have any account of this slaughtering of the Jews, and there's a good reason. Because in the surrounding areas of that Bethlehem, there was probably only, it's been figured out, and this is you know, not exact, but there's probably only 20 to 30 male children of that age in that area. So given it's not many compared to the, the, the murderous things Herod had done before, but it is uh, very horrific, evil, and satanic. Satan's a murderer. Now, there's some issues we have to deal with, aren't there? Probably in your mind. Remember, God is sovereign, and he has allowed Herod to do this. And it is by divine direction that the Magi departed the other way, which precipitated Herod's response, right? Therefore, you might ask the question, is God responsible for these deaths? Absolutely not. Herod is responsible. Herod is acting like his father, the devil. And indeed, everyone who is not in Christ is in the domain of darkness, Indeed, everyone who has rejected Christ is by default a slave of sin and Satan. And I believe if put in the same position, elevated pride, like Herod, controlling everything, no temporal circumstances for any actions that any unbeliever might contemplate and justify possibly doing the same thing. But what about the children? 
the infants not knowing their right and left. Well, in a sense, they were kind of the first martyrs for Christ, if you think about it. They were killed for him, not of their own actions, but of Herod's actions. But you think about how awful it is, 20 to 30 children killed, but how many millions of babies are killed every year and aborted? What do we think about that? Millions and millions. But here we have 20 or 30. It's all evil no matter what it is, no matter who directs it. So then we have the awful execution of children at the hands of unbelieving King Herod, to which Matthew now points out this is in fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy, which is very interesting. Look at what he says here. He says, uh, Then when Herod saw, verse 16, that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its environs from two years old and under, according to the time which he had ascertained from the Magi. Then, then, that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And here's the prophecy saying, A voice was heard in Ramah weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because there were no more. Now, on an initial reading, I can go, okay, I understand that. Weeping for children, that prophecy is fulfilled, but there's much more to it. Because the interesting thing is this prophecy comes out of Jeremiah, and the context in Jeremiah is quite different than just this one piece we think of of mothers weeping for their children. In Jeremiah, the, the context is the hope that God is bringing to Israel in spite of their sin and the weeping that comes from it. So how is this fulfilled? Well, it's interesting to note that Ramah is a place in which Jerusalem and Judah were gathered together before they were exiled to Babylon. Jeremiah 40, verse 1. Rachel, in the context of Jeremiah 31, spoke of Jewish mothers who had lost their children during the siege of Jerusalem. Very interesting. So certainly this quote from Jeremiah, some might say it just refers to weeping over the kids, but if you were a Jew and you knew the Old Testament, you would know exactly the context. You'd go, oh boy, there's much more to this than what it seems. You see, the context here is the grief of those Jews taken into exile with their children who had been killed And then there is the exhortation in the context of Jeremiah to stop grieving because there's hope in Christ. Take a look at Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 11. So if you're a Jew, you'd notice this. You'd go, oh, this is what's being said here. Jeremiah 31, verse 11. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob, he is redeemed from the hand of him who is stronger than he, and they shall come and shout for joy in the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain and over the new wine and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd, and their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall never languish again. They were being expelled for their sin, and they were languishing, and they were suffering, but he's saying, hey, that's going to be over. And he says here, then a virgin shall rejoice the dance and the young men shall, shall and old together for I will turn their mourning into joy and will comfort them and give them joy in their sorrow. I will fill the soul of the priests with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness. This is a prophecy of redemption for Israel who had been so sinful. 
declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Notice this. A voice heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel's weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. But then read on. Thus says the Lord. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For your work shall be rewarded, declares the Lord. And they shall return from the land of the enemy. And there is hope for your future declares the Lord, and your children shall return to their own territory. So the Jew, when they saw that prophecy in Matthew, would go, this is about stop weeping because there's hope in a Redeemer who's going to return you to the land and you're going to be forgiven. It's a prophecy of God doing good in the midst of evil. You see, although Satan had his momentary wicked lashing out through Herod there, the Christ would not be killed. The Christ would be uh, preserved and brought forth and would ultimately die for their sins and bring redemption. It's a prophecy of hope. You have hope. You have hope. You see, God takes the wicked things of the world and turns them for good. That's what we need to see out of this. Genesis chapter 50, after all that happened to Joseph... He said, as for you, you meant it for evil against me. Hey, you did. That's what you did, brothers. And it was evil, and you did. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't say, oh, it's fine what you did. He says, no, you meant it for evil. But he said, but God meant it for good. Genesis 50, verse 20. Uh, Meant it for good in order to bring about the present result to preserve many alive. We've got to see the evil that God does allow. We pray that it doesn't happen, and God does restrain it and protect us at times, but sometimes he allows it for his redemptive purposes. And so when it is allowed, we need to see it rightly, like in what's going on these days at times. We need to see it rightly. Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. He's working it. Together, Yes, there is weeping, but that weeping is, is a sign that there's going to be redemption, that there's going to be hope, that there is hope. It's a sign. It's a fulfilled prophecy. He's going to work out his redemptive purposes in you through the difficulties he allows. Through the difficulties he allows us as believers to go through, maybe in the next few years or whatever it might be, he's going to use them for his will if we submit and see it rightly. Talking about submitting to him and his plan and his ways. Whatever it is, whether it's a process of trials to make us more like Christ, difficulties he allows that we might shine forth to others, redemptive opportunities for sharing why we have hope in the midst of a terribly difficult time. Now there's another application here before we finish up here and move on to the last uh, prophecy If you are an unbeliever, your attempts at holding on to power are futile. Your attempts to holding on to your life, you can gain the whole world, but you will lose your own soul. Your attempts to hold on to it, keep on to it, hold on to it, are futile. You're not going to succeed. It's only when you give it up that you gain everything in Christ. So he's going to work it out. He's going to turn it for good. We've got to see that. Yes, it doesn't mean we don't say that's wrong. You see, David's saying this, but he trusts the Lord in what he sees is wrong. He trusts the Lord. So let's take a look at the last prophecy here. Notice uh, he also fulfills prophecies that he would be despised and forsaken. 
Look at verse 19. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to, in a dream to Joseph. This is back in Matthew 2 in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. You see, uh, we don't know the time span that uh, Christ was in Egypt, but as I mentioned before, the word child here is paideon, which speaks of an infant or a baby. So he didn't grow up in Egypt and do all that dumb stuff those people on History Channel say. He went there as a child, and he came back pretty quickly when Herod died. Now concerning Herod's death, uh, Josephus, a uh, historian that day, writes that of Herod that he died of this, also raided in trials, future fried and maggot-filled organs, constant convulsions, foul breath. Neither physicians were able to warm bath, led him to recovery. He died. Herod has died. What did Herod profit? What did he profit? He had everything, right? He even, he even uh, got rid of the Christ for a while. His was out of his, his eyes, right? What did he profit? Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus says to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, if you want to follow me, it's your choice. You don't have to follow the Lord. If you want to follow me, he says, here's the requirements. He says, let him deny himself. That means say no to yourself. You can only do that in Christ. And take up his cross and follow me. You die daily. It says, forever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is, come, is going to come in the glory of his Father with angels and then will recompense every man according to his, his deeds. So Herod died. So arise and take the child and his mother and go back to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And so notice what Joseph does. He obeys right away again. Uh, verse 21, And he arose and took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. Again, his obedience. He obeys. But notice, he's a real guy with real concerns. Look at verse 22. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Archelaus, like father, like son, right? Hmm. And so... What happens? Notice God's gracious intervention. When you're obeying the Lord, God intervenes with his word and he directs our path. He takes care of you. Trust him. Notice at the end of verse 22, And being warned by God in a dream, he departed for the region of Galilee and came and resided in a city called Nazareth. Now Luke chapter 1 and, and 2, we find that Mary and Joseph were from Nazareth. That's where they're originally from, but they had stayed in Bethlehem. So having been warned by God, they had gone to Egypt, and then they came back when Herod was dead, and then they were warned by God not to go to Bethlehem, but to go, and they went to Nazareth. And Nazareth, about 55 miles north of Jerusalem in the Galilean region, and it's where they had originally come from. And he says here, Verse 23, and it came, and they came and resided in a city called Nazareth that was spoken, that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. And you go, okay, another prophecy just sounds kind of straightforward. What's he talking about? Well, it's really actually quite important. 
he should be called a Nazarene. And people look and they say, where's that prophecy? I can't find that in the Old Testament. Where is it? Some people think it's from the verb uh, that use in Hebrew word nazar, which is, means branch. That means speaking of the branch, possibly, but that's not what it is. I think we understand it, and we can understand it by how it's shared here. He says, that which was spoken through the prophets, plural. It's plural. Multiple prophets said something that would be fulfilled in Jesus being called a Nazarene. And you go, wait a second, what in the world is he talking about? Well, we need to understand that the term Nazarene was not a good term. It was not a compliment. To be called a Nazarene was not a compliment at all. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 46, And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come from Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. You see, the, Nazareth, the, the, the area here of Nazareth was, they were considered to be basically, you know, country bumpkins, uneducated uh, you know, low class, low lives. It was an insult. It was an insult to be a Naz- Nazarene in a sense. It was an insult. So how is it that being called a Nazarene, Jesus later would be called Nazarene later on, not this point, but later on, would be fulfillment of what multiple prophets had said? How is that? Well, I think it has to do with the fact that Jesus would be reproached and despised by men. I think that's what it is. Psalm 22, 6 to 8, he was reproached by men, despised by the people. He was called the despised one in uh, Isaiah 49, 7. You know, you have uh, Nathaniel saying, can any good thing come from Nazareth? Is there any good thing? I can't, I don't believe so. We saw this last week, Isaiah 53. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief and one from whom men hid their face. He was despised. I think there's many prophecies that reveal that Jesus would be despised, and that's what this is pointing to. But what's the significance for us? What's the significance for us? You see, God sovereignly ordained the circumstances that Jesus would be despised. And this was foreshadowing what God would ultimately do in having him die for us. Turn to Isaiah 53. And all these things happened because Joseph and them obeyed the Lord. God will use you if you obey him. If you don't obey him, you're on your own. God will use you sovereignly. It's way beyond us, by the way, in our daily obedience. Isaiah 53, and I mentioned this before, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, one from whom men hid their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. That's what the Jews thought of him. This guy's afflicted, smitten of God. That's who he is, that Nazarene. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening or punishment for our well-being, shalom, fell upon him. And by his scourging, we're shielded. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each has turned his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You see, we're all sinners. And God has to punish sin. 
but he sent his son. He took on human flesh and he punished him instead. He put all the punishment that man deserves for sin, for all of our sins, on Jesus. He took our punishment instead that we would have peace. And all God calls upon you is to acknowledge your sin, your need of a Savior, to turn to him. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so these prophecies point to that reality, that there's hope in Jesus Christ, and that there's salvation in him, that he would be despised, but yet he would not be defeated. He would defeat instead sin, the devil, and death. So then we see three prophecies fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He would uh, come from Egypt to bring about salvation, a deliverer. He's the only hope for mankind in the midst of the mourning and uh, tragedy that sin breaks, brings. And it is he who would suffer for us in our place. That's the Jesus who came for us. So how does it apply to us? Well, first of all, if you don't know Christ, everything you're doing is against him. You're not in his will. Your plans will not succeed. If you continue your way opposing Christ, uh, you will end up like Herod. You will die. You will be punished for your sin. But the good news is in spite of your unfaithfulness and my unfaithfulness, and my sin and your sin, in spite of that, God loved us and sent his son to die for us. And if we trust in his son Jesus for salvation, we receive the forgiveness of sins. And then we have an eternal, true hope. And what about you and I, brother and sister? Do we see the evil in the world and God allows around us and the difficulties from the right perspective? Do we see it as fertile ground for the redemptive work of God if we're willing to submit to him? We need to, and we need to be re-encouraged in that. It's really easy to complain when difficulties come upon us or whatever it might be, and we've got to renew our minds and know that God has allowed things, but he's going to turn it for good and see that he's going to use it for good if we trust him, if we rely on him, if we don't lean on our own understanding, if we don't figure it out our own, but we allow his word to inform us by his spirit. Don't worry. Don't fear. Whatever he allows to come upon us, he will use for good. He'll use for good. And that is exemplified in the fact that the worst evil that was ever brought forth in delivering up Jesus Christ to the cross was used for the greatest good to bring our salvation. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word. And uh, Lord, it's so easy to look at all the bad things happening around us and get discouraged or fearful. And Lord, I pray that we as believers would not do that, that we would be renewed in our understanding that although there might be weeping for the moment, there's joy in the morning. And that you are working all things together for good. Please help us remember that. Help us remember that you're taking the wickedness of Satan and sinners and turning it for good in our lives. Help us to be like uh, Joseph and obey, not knowing all the facts, but just obeying your word so that we would be used by you for your glory. And Lord, I pray for those who don't know you today that they would recognize that your son Jesus fulfills all the prophecies 
in which it is through Him coming into this world and dying for our sins that we have true eternal hope. So I thank you for your Son, Jesus. I thank you for this morning. I pray it in His name.